Right. Could you please turn with me to the book of Hebrews? Hebrews, and we are in chapter 4. So we are back into this series through the book of Hebrews, which we've called Jesus is Better, because that is the theme of this book. And this wonderful letter is just full of great teaching about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done. If you haven't been with us, I want to just recap this book really quickly. Um, And even if you have been with us, uh, each week has felt like uh, a fire hose has been uh, released at the front of this church here. And we are just trying to drink in as much as we can. The original hearers of this church faced a number of struggles. But two main struggles that they faced was one coming from a group of people called the Essenes, or the Qumran community, or you might have heard of something called the Dead Sea sect. And this was a Jewish sect that believed that there would be an end-time prophet of God, and there would be a priestly messiah, a kingly messiah, and all of this kingdom would be ruled over by the archangel Michael. So numerous important figures with an angel over it all. And so for this reason that the writer of Hebrews, if you you read it yourself, begins the letter by declaring Jesus to be prophet, priest, and king, all in himself. And in the first two chapters of Hebrews, he's showing that Jesus is better than angels because he is creator, not part of the creation, which is what uh, the angels are. It says in Hebrews 2.5, it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. That's what he is dealing with. But another struggle, and perhaps even a, a bigger struggle that this group had, was that they were dealing with... Uh, wrong opinions about the Old Testament laws and ceremonies, right? The Old Testament laws and ceremonies are part of the Old Covenant, and then contrasting it with the new way of Jesus. They had been wondering, we used to have all of these feasts, we used to have all of these uh, ceremonies, we used to have all of these sacrifices, we had a religion where we could see everything, where we could smell, we could touch we could see the priest go into the temple. We could hear the, the lamb be, be slaughtered for our sins in our place. And they were wondering, was a Savior, Jesus Christ, that they could not see better than what they had? These people were dealing with the temptation to go back to Old Covenant Judaism. And for this reason, in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 of Hebrews, the writer shows that Jesus is better than Moses, the great figure of the Old Covenant. And so, we're now in this next section of the book, and it continues with that temptation to return to Old Covenant Judaism. And the writer begins this new section, and it begins here in Hebrews chapter 4, Verse 14, 
and it goes all the way to the end of Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to get somewhere along that uh, chapter 7 uh, by Christmas time, somewhere between here and there uh, by Christmas. <coughs> and it's, this next section is showing how Jesus is a better high priest. He's better than Moses, he's a better high priest, and of course Aaron being the key figure of the high priest. So it's Jesus better than Moses, and now it's Jesus better than Aaron. That goes all the way up to chapter 7. And here we have three verses at the end of chapter 4 that are perhaps the most famous part of the book of Hebrews. Jesus, the great high priest. And this section answers the question, what is Jesus doing right now for his people? Okay, we're tracking? Let's read uh, the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of God. It's helpful for us to remember that this section comes at the tail end of one of the warning passages in Hebrews, in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. <clears throat> the hearers are told, don't be like that unbelieving generation of Israelites in the wilderness who didn't trust God's promise and therefore failed to enter into the promised land of Canaan. And so the warning has been, don't stop believing in Jesus, or you'll be without hope, just like those Israelites in the wilderness. Martin Luther famously said about this section, After terrifying us, the apostle, or the writer, now comforts us. He has terrified us with a warning, and now he comforts us. Here is your high priest. Priests have a function. Priests represent God, people. Sorry, priests represent people before God. They go from man and they go towards God. Prophets, on the other hand, go from God towards people. And so the writer is saying, "Look at the superiority of your high priest." There are three things in this text that that really stand out, one for each of the three verses. One, that Jesus is ascended. Secondly, that he is sympathetic. And thirdly, that he provides for his people. Right? So he's ascended, sympathetic, and he provides. Um, so firstly, in verse 14, we have an ascended high priest. I'm sure many of you, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this verse before. You've heard these verses. But you've probably skipped over this little section, this little phrase, who has passed through the heavens. 
We know this is a text, the, the great high priest text, but it says he's passed through the heavens. What is that saying? This ties us back to Hebrews chapter 4, a few verses before, in verse 10, which says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And of course, as we, we look through Hebrews 4, what are God's works? It's speaking of God's works of creation. Who has entered God's rest and rested from his works as God did from his? Who's done that? The answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus was born as a man, truly God, truly man. He lived a perfect, law-keeping life as the Son of God. He died in our place as a ransom for sinners. On the third day, he rose from the dead. That's why we're all here. Showing the vindication of his sacrifice. And then in Hebrews chapter 1 and Acts chapter 1, we're told that Jesus ascended after his resurrection to the right hand of the majesty on high and sat down. He ascended. He's enthroned. Or we could put it another way. Jesus entered God's rest and then sat down as our forerunner. So when we see here in Hebrews 4 that Jesus passed through the heavens, it means he has ascended and he has taken his place at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is now ruling. The resurrection and the ascension together demonstrates that Jesus, sitting as king, has this wonderful place on his throne. He has the kingship, but also he has a priesthood. Because Jesus is a conquering king who's defeated sin, Satan, death, and hell, he is also able to bring us to God as priest. And this fulfills something that takes a while for your head to get your head around. This fulfills Psalm 110, which is the text which is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more times than any other Old Testament text, Psalm 110, which speaks of an eternal priest king. One man who is priest and king together. That is Jesus. And what he has done uniquely qualifies him to do that role. Jesus is said to be a great high priest. What on earth is that? What on earth is that? Under the old covenant, the high priest was someone who had a hereditary title, the high priest. He would be of the tribe of Levi, but very specifically, he would be one of the sons of Aaron, who was the first high priest. The priest would offer sacrifices daily. But then, once a year, Leviticus 16 tells us, the high priest would go into this place called the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of 
the tabernacle later, which became the temple. And in this Holy of Holies, this was to be a copy of the heavenly reality. It was a copy of the heavenly reality. The very presence of God on earth in this room. Elsewhere in scripture, it's spoken of as being God's footstool. Right? It's a connection between the earth and the heavens. The presence of God there visibly in Zion. And no one went into that Holy of Holies apart from once a year, the high priest, after offering the sacrifice of a bull for himself, he would enter in. And that one day that the high priest would go in, we all know, do we, is called the Day of Atonement. And Leviticus 16 verse 30 says, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. That's what the high priest did. That was his job. To represent the people before God. And very specifically on that one day. To offer sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. Now let's tie this together, Jesus being the high priest. The high priest passed through the curtain of the Holy of Holies once a year to go into the symbolic presence of God. Jesus, the great high priest, passed through the heavens into the real presence of God. He made propitiation for sins. He bore God's wrath. He took the punishment deserved. He secured eternal rest. And is now, this is speaking of, transcendent in his greatness. Transcendent. He is high and lifted up. No one is like him. Moses did not enter the promised land of rest called Canaan. Aaron went in once a year to a copy of the presence of God. Jesus enters eternal rest to take with him all those who belong to him. The writer of Hebrews is telling us one thing. This is better, much better than what you had. Secondly, Jesus is not only an ascended high priest, he is a sympathetic high priest. He ascends, he sits down to rule, he takes up his role of high priest. And as priest, he represents those who belong to him. He represents them as their intercessor. You guys know that word? Intercession, intercessor. To intercede is to pray on behalf of someone. To step in the gap for them. We're told later in Hebrews 7.25, Jesus lives to make intercession for sinners. That's literally the thing that concerns them. He lives to make intercession for sinners. That is good news. Now think about what's just been said in verse 14. 
Does Jesus' greatness, does his transcendence mean he is now entirely aloof, completely remote, and not really interested in representing real sinners? You ever heard someone who's uh, that you grew up with and you were friends with and then they really start moving up in the world and they get a job promotion and they get a fancy high-rise office in, in Auckland and then you kind of never hear from them again? You ever had that happen, something like that? You can imagine, right? Does this great title now mean he is completely detached from us? That's the next question. The answer is no. No. We are told Jesus is uniquely placed to take up this role as a standard high priest because he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Now this might mess with your head because this is one part of uh, theology that the church has kind of lost a little bit in the last 100 or 200 years. Not everyone, but many. Is God able to be vulnerable, to suffer, and sympathize with our weaknesses from a place of having experienced temptation? No. Absolutely not. God does not suffer. He doesn't. He cannot. God does not suffer. He cannot change. He says, I change not. God's not crying in a corner because a bunch of atheists and Satan worshippers on the internet say nasty things about him. He does not suffer. He's God. He doesn't change. This shows the necessity of the Incarnation. The definition of Chalcedon, I I love it, early document uh, from about the 4th century, says that Jesus Christ is two natures, indivisible, he's truly God, truly man. Jesus Christ's Incarnation is the addition of of a human nature to his divine nature. Not a change in his God godliness. It's not a change in his divine nature or a weakening of God in any way, shape, or form. God does not change. There is an addition of a human nature and, and by some mystery that those two natures are indivisible, cannot be separated. But he's not less than God or more than God. It's truly God, truly man. And that is the argument of Hebrews chapter 2 that makes Jesus uniquely qualified to be our Savior. Jesus, the Son of Mary. Jesus, the Son of God. Both. Philip Hughes says, As divine, he is one with God. As incarnate, he is one with man. As God-man, he is competent to accomplish the great work of reconciliation, whereby harmony between God and man is re-established. He must be both. 
Jesus understands our temptations and weaknesses because he himself was tempted. Some of the ways in which this happened is when Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan says to him, turn these stones into bread. As a temptation to forsake his father as the means of his provision. Idolatry. This does not mean, when it says here, and I want, I want to say this, when it says that Jesus is sympathetic for us in our weaknesses because he is being tempted, this does not mean that Jesus has experienced everything unique in your life. Does Jesus know what it is like to be up with a screaming baby at two in the morning who doesn't want to sleep? No. Does Jesus know what it's like to struggle with an addiction? Has he experienced that from a place personally? No. And we can say that. But Jesus understands us in ways we don't understand us. He understands us in our humanity in ways that we have never managed to experience because his struggles were even greater. Some people will say that because Jesus was without sin, he did not truly know temptation. Oh, he doesn't know what it's like. He was sinless. I love what Westcott says on this. He says, Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on of the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. That's so good. It's saying because Jesus did not sin, he knows the true fullness of how difficult temptation is. Jesus knew the temptation to covet, to take something that God had not given him. He understood grief. He understood shame. He understood trials. There he was the night before he died, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what came next for him. He most certainly knew difficulty. He most certainly knew pain. And how great, how great, can you imagine this? How great the temptation we read about in Matthew twenty-seven forty, where it was said to him, If you truly are the Son of God, come down from that cross. You're going for the most unbearable suffering possible. If you truly are the Son of God, come down from that cross. Could he have done that? Absolutely. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame because he desired our salvation and ultimately God's glory. And we are told this great little phrase here in verse 15. Yet without sin. 
Had Jesus sinned, he would have failed to be worthy of his role of eternal high priest. He would not be able to do what he does. But he is without sin. And so this is great. You've got this ascended high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And you know what? He doesn't kick us off the team for being sinners. He's able to help us. He shows sympathy to us. How does he help? We read that in verse 16. What is this high priest's provision for us? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Access. That's the word. Access. Our great problem, I say this each week, our great problem is our sin which alienates us from God. Drawing near to God as a sinner is a terrible thing. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Drawing near to God left to ourselves is met with judgment. And that's something that is difficult for us to appreciate, right, in this culture. It's largely stripped God's holiness, His, His, His unlikeness to us from God. Stripped holiness from God. Isaiah was granted a vision of the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And as he beheld the holiness of God, what were his words? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Isaiah did not go forward boldly to speak to the king. Yet here we are told, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Literally, boldness. Speak to God freely and frankly. Boldly. Don't harken back. Go. I'm not saying flippantly, but it does say boldly. And who is this for? Just one special human being? No. All believers draw near with confidence. I know if you're doing one of those Bible reading plans, you got stuck in the book of Numbers. You shouldn't. It's really good. Numbers chapter 3. Wow. Think of the Old Covenant. Remember the the Old Covenant that these believers, the Hebrews, were tempted to go back to with its tabernacle and priests and sacrifices. Numbers chapter 3 verse 10 says, You shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. If any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. At the end of Numbers chapter 3 and verse 38, it says, If anyone comes near the tabernacle, they shall be put to death. Oops. 
You've got this system where the covenant community of Israel hang back at a great, great distance from the tabernacle and most certainly from the Holy of Holies. And you got the system where the priest offers sacrifices and the high priest would go on once a year to the Holy of Holies to offer this atoning sacrifice. And it is a scary, scary thing. The writer of Hebrews himself says in chapter 12, verse 20, it's talking about the giving of the Old Covenant to Moses. He says, they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Mount Sinai. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses says, I tremble with fear. To summarize, don't come near boldly. Do not. You will die. This shows the greatness of Christ. That priestly line, those high priests, those sons of Aaron. And even then, you're a son of Aaron. So you don't run boldly because you will be killed. But we see the contrast. We see here, Jesus, the Son of God, the throne of judgment, or the, the throne of God's holiness, the throne of God's wrath, is instead transformed into a throne of grace. When you read that phrase, the throne of grace, don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. It's saying you can draw near to that which was earned by another and freely given to you. What we see here in Hebrews is the practical outworking of the symbolic tearing of the curtain which you read about at the crucifixion of Christ. The curtain was torn in two. The veil was torn in two. That entrance into the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Why? So that we might go in. This is why it says we can draw near with confidence, with boldness. I love what Tim Keller says. Only a child would wake up a king and ask for a glass of water. We have that access. And that's what this is saying. Think about how important this truth would have been for those original hearers. Think of the contrast. He's saying, draw near with confidence. Meanwhile, they're thinking of drawing back in apostasy and going back to the old covenant. He says, no, 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 don't draw back. Don't stay away. Come towards God because of Jesus. This is so much better. How do we apply this? What do we do? What do we do? There are two things we are told to do in this text. Two things and two things only. The first one is in verse 14. Do you see it? Hold fast our confession. 
or confession. The Westminster, the London Baptist, no. Jesus Christ. Who's our confession? The high priest of our confession. Jesus Christ. Hold fast our confession. That's what it says in Hebrews 3, 6. It says, we are his house if we hold fast our confessing and our boasting in hope. We must hold on to Jesus. Don't move away from him. Don't move back because there is no hope without him. If you're sitting here and you're struggling in your faith, we apply this by saying, I have a high priest, and my high priest keeps me believing. He keeps me able to come to God. He keeps me. He holds on to me. So why we sing that song. He will hold me fast. Hold on to him. He holds on to you even tighter. And secondly, we are told, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. How do we do this? By praying. By repenting of our sins. By seeking God's forgiveness. By enjoying our fellowship and our relationship with Him. And we are told, why should we do this? What is the result of our coming to God having been reconciled by Christ? It says that we might receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Let us apply this to the Lord's Supper, which we're going to come to now. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. You're here this morning along with me, you're thinking to yourself, oh gosh, please don't give me what I do deserve. Please don't treat me for my sins. I have walked away from God. I have said things I should not have said. I have thought things I should not have said. I should, should not have thought. I have done things I should not have done. I have not done things I should have done. Don't. Don't. Treat me like I do deserve. Give me mercy. And it is found in Christ who took those sins upon himself at the cross. And then we see grace. I don't like to call grace unmerited favor because the gift of grace has always been earned by someone. Grace has been given to us because Christ has earned us God's grace on our behalf and therefore it is freely given. He has earned us this right relationship. He has earned us purification from sin. And now he gives it to us freely as a gift received by faith. We must draw near that we might receive mercy and grace. And we see God's promise to us here in this bread, in this wine, Jesus' body broken for us and his blood poured out to give us these wonderful gifts. That is what our high priest is doing right now. And he is present with us, ascended right at the right hand of the Father, by faith, through his Spirit. And he promises that one day, we will eat and drink with him in heaven because he has gone ahead 
He has passed through the heavens to that rest. And we will go to be with him. Let's pray.